Hi, you're listening to Sundays at Sherman Bible. We're really glad you chose to join us today. The following message is from our pastor, Dennis Henderson. Well, farmers from miles away were up before dawn, before the sun ever came up. And they were heading towards the city and they were carrying their fruit, their first fruits of their harvest from the summer. It was a June morning. It was the fourth decade of the first century. And they walked in in anticipation of what would take place in the city that day because this was going to be a day of gratitude, that they would thank God for his smile upon their harvest. And as they got to the city, the gates were opening as the sun was rising. And the priest welcomed them in there with all their sacrifices and their doves and their pigeons and their lambs into this great day of celebration. Along with all the farmers came thousands of other people from all around the known world that day to celebrate this day that they call Pentecost, the celebration of 50 days after the Passover. As they entered into the town that day, the tones and the sounds started splattering all throughout the walls and upon the cobblestone street of voices and dialects from every nation to the known world that day. Those who came were Jewish believers, some by birth, some by choice, but they'd come for a great day of celebration. Now take your finger, would you? Press the pause button on your DVD for a moment. Everybody, you ready? All right, we got it. Second thing, if you got a Bible, hold it up. I need to see it. That's your check-in. Two things you get in here with, a Bible and a can of food, all right? And uh, those are the things we require you to bring. If you don't have a Bible, then we get one there in the chair. I'll tell you to take it home, all right? Turn it to page 770 if you're going to use a chair Bible, and we'll begin our study in just a moment. It's Acts chapter 2. So we put a pause on so we can connect that story to where we were last week. And last week, we are in this first chapter of Acts. And we began with a question last week by asking a question that we actually answered by the end of the morning. And the question was, what is the one essential thing that you look for in a church? I mean, the thing that's non-negotiable. And we're doing that for a couple of reasons. For we who have been around here a long time, just to remind us of what sometimes it's so easily forget, why we exist as a church. And reaffirm that non-negotiable, one essential for us. For you who are new, you've been coming here for the last couple months checking out things. We welcome you. We're glad you're here. But we don't want to do a switch and bait on you. You know, a little bait and switch. And that is, we kind of bring you and say, oh, it's cool here. And say, this is what we're about. We want you to know what we're about from, the, from here on. We want to make sure it's the, the essential in our church. That one essential is your essential. If it's not, then we got some changes. And guess what? We're not changing. <laughs> so you're going to have to readjust that essential or you're going to have to keep shopping. Okay? Because we're not going to change that one essential of why we exist as a church. Because you see, many of us, because we are a Bible church and not a denominational church, some of you come from different backgrounds and you bring your baggage and your agenda with you. And what we ask you to do is check it at the door. Just leave it there. And get a fresh agenda that makes sure it's in alignment with why we exist. And the one essential that we're here for is in Acts 1.8. We studied it last week. 
And that's the essential that Jesus gave out to that early group of believers to go and be witnesses, Jerusalem, hometown, Judea, Samaria, and the place that the assignment was so big that he said to the uttermost parts of the world. He said, this is what you must do. There's a lot of other things that can be done in a church, but there's only one thing that must be done. And the other things that can be done better connect to the one thing that must be done. And so we started there last week, and that one essential is world evangelism. And that one essential then is making disciples. That is the essential that we come about. World evangelism, make disciples. Everything else must tie to that, okay? Now, with that said, it's been supported by all the other gospels. Matthew, he recorded it, Matthew 28. Luke records it in Luke 24. Mark records it in 1615. John records it in his gospel in the 20th chapter. And they all say the same thing in essence. Go and take this story to all nations. That was why the church existed. Now, with that said and given to them that day, all of a sudden the church says, wow, these are the believers. They looked around. They said, you know, there's only about 120 of us. <laughs> and we've got to go to the whole world? I mean, we don't have television. We don't have the Internet. We don't have jets to fly around in. I mean, we don't have great technology. I mean, how in the world? We don't even have a printed press. We don't even have a, a complete, you know, copy of the Scriptures. How's that going to be done? And I'm sure that was probably overwhelmed with them when they realized that what Jesus told them to do is going to be beyond their little neighbor next door. It was going to be the whole world and so Jesus says, all right, we know this is the biggest sign. Was this what you got to do? And last week in verse 15, he says, wait. Don't go off half-cocked. You know, don't go to your whiteboards and, your, and, you know, and start figuring out how you're going to do this. Just wait and let me kind of show you how this should be done. And so he asked him to wait. And in Luke 24, he says, not only wait, wait in Jerusalem. Very significant to their waiting why they should wait in Jerusalem rather than out in some desert. He said, I want you to wait in the main city of God-fearing people. So he says, wait. And we come now to Acts 2 today, and we pick up the story. I'll make a quick comment, and that is Acts 2 is one of the most controversial chapters in the entire New Testament in the history of Christendom. Whether you realize or not, if you go through it, and I did this week, I just made note of all the controversies that have come out of Acts chapter 2. All the denominations that have sprung. All the divisions that have come out of Acts 2, and there's many of them. And yet, in Acts 2, originally it was the most unifying chapter in Christian history. Because they're all on the same page. But since that time, We've had to debate, and we've, and we've had controversies over many issues in chapter 2, which I will not focus on today, because I want to stay on the essential issue in chapter 2. And so it's chapter 2. This assignment was such gravity that God says, you know what? You're going to receive power. Last week, remember, divine enablement. That word in the Greek is dunamis, which we get the word dynamite. This thing's going to, this dunamis, this power is going to be very powerful when it comes upon you, but it's going to enable you to carry out what I've just told you your assignment was. On your own, you're not going to carry it out. He said, so you go wait till this power comes. I remind you, they haven't read the book of Acts yet. 
they had no idea how it was going to come, you know. They, had, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. All they knew that Jesus said, go wait, so let's go. We're going back to Jerusalem. We've, we've checked out a room, and we're going to all squeeze in this room, and we will wait. He didn't tell them how long to wait. He just said, wait. So obediently, they do that, and we come into Acts chapter 2, and we know previously, he, and according to Luke and the other gospel, he said, wait upon the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I've had to kind of wade through how many things can I talk about today. So I'm not going to go through all of this by any means, but we will cover this probably by the time we end the book of Acts. But let's talk about the Holy Spirit very quickly. Some, just some quick points on there. Here's the cliff notes. Number one, the, old, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament time, but it never resided in the people of the Old Testament, God-following people. It came upon people such as David, Moses, and, and all the others, and Samson, and Elijah, at time for special assignments. But he, the Holy Spirit did not live within people people. When he came to the New Testament, we start to make this transition. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is with you. And they looked around and they said, huh? In John chapter 14, 16 through 18, they said, he's with you right now. And they looked around. And he says, but I will have to leave and I'm going to send you a comforter who will be in you. Basically, we're seeing the whole Trinity kind of get active there because Jesus said, I'm with you. I'm God the Son. I'm going to leave, and God the Spirit, which is me, is going to come in you because we're three in one. But he says, I'm going to come in you. So we get to John chapter 20. He says this. On that, after he had resurrected, he looks at them, and he walks into that room where all the disciples are there, representing believers, and he said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them as if he was breathing the life of the Spirit into them. And so some believe that that's when the Holy Spirit started to be activated in their lives. Now we come to our story today, and we're going to find out that the Holy Spirit came upon all the believers. And the essence is that from that moment on, all those who would start to follow Jesus and receive him into their life, they would receive the Spirit of God. It's nothing that takes place after you're saved. Some people believe that, you know, the Holy Spirit comes later. No, he comes immediately because why? There's so many things that would point to that. This day, but more important than that, if you read the whole, uh, if you take that whole study of Scripture and you just start to work through some of the studies, you understand that in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It comes in you the day you trust Christ. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, reminded that we are baptized upon our belief into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 10, we understand that the Spirit of God lives in us because if he doesn't, we're not of Christ. Anyone who, has, who claims to know Christ must have the spirit in him it's something that we receive at salvation now the filling of the spirit who's in us is an operative that comes into our it happens in our lives when we yield to him and we allow him to take control of us so today we come to acts chapter 2 the setting is they're waiting they're not inactively waiting. They're actively waiting in prayer, according to verse 14, chapter 1. They're all gathered there to pray. I don't know what they prayed. Would it be interesting to know what they prayed? I thought it would be. I thought, what did they pray that day? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. On earth is it a heaven. They'd been taught to pray like that. Probably they were praying, God, we don't have any idea why we're here. We're waiting on power however that's going to come so god we're just opening up to you we're waiting 
God, we want to do your will. And I imagine there was just prayers of awesome surrender waiting on God to direct them and empower them. Now Acts chapter 2. You ready? Verse 1. We come to our story of today, and this is how it all comes about. It says, when the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the Passover, came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, now watch every word here because it's important. And suddenly, like, all right? That's the best way that Luke could describe it. It was like the blowing of a violent wind that came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be, seemed to be, like tongues. That's the best way. He said, I looked around and it seemed to be like tongues of fire that they separated. It wasn't one big flame. It was several. In fact, it came upon the rest, upon everyone there. And then he says, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, gave them divine enablement to do that. And now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they, all these Jews that came from all around the world, heard this sound, a crowd came together in, the, in, in bewilderment and, and because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. And they were utterly amazed because they said this, are these, not, these men that are speaking, are they not Galileans? These people that are speaking right here, these are the backwood people. And they're speaking in our language, all right? Put your finger back on it and let's release it and let's continue now. Let me kind of give you the feel. As the gates were open and the farmers and all the people came in from all over the world to celebrate one of three required days that every Jewish man would have to celebrate at least once in his life in this pilgrimage, three of national days of celebration that would take place in Jerusalem each year. One had just taken place 50 days earlier, the Passover. They've entered now to celebrate, to give God thanks for their harvest. And as they entered in, the priest greeted them, the city started to swell. We don't know for sure. Historians never can figure it out totally in any time. But the best guess that there was probably 100,000 people living in Jerusalem as permanent residents. Historians say that when Pentecost came, that it would normally swell to about one million. We're talking about a time of festival. We're talking about crowded conditions. We're talking about every Motel 6 full. We're talking about people with their RVs and their camels parked everywhere in town because this was a huge celebration every year, okay? So that's kind of the setting dialects from all over the world languages were being heard everywhere they're bouncing off the walls and off the cobblestone streets and and you could hear it and then all of a sudden from a room there's a noise a wind it sounds like that's the best way like a violent wind notice they didn't feel the wind this says they heard the wind and everybody heard the wind and as that wind was sound was, was, was going about in that room. It started to echo out into the city. 
And those 120 believers all of a sudden had some sense of something's happening upon them and a a tongue like a fire fell upon each of them and the next thing you know, they broke huddle and they went out into the streets and they began to praise God. And the Bible says they began to speak in other languages. And it lists at least 15 of them there if you continue to read on. Beginning in in verse 8, it says, Then how is it each of us hears from his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites. He says, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Kaposia. He says, In Pontus and, and, and Asia. In Phrygia and Pamphylia, it says in Egypt, in the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, those who chose to follow it. He says in Christians and, and, and Arabs, he says we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Some of your translations say they were praising God in their own tongues. And they were amazed and they were perplexed. Let's kind of get this to update so you can understand a little better. Let's go to New York City, okay? Most of you have either been there or you've seen enough of it. You understand how busy it's. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Busy weekday. I mean, traffic is starting to back up. People are all over the sidewalks walking, taxis and buses and cars. And it's just busy, busy, busy. And all of a sudden, at 9 o'clock in the morning, there's this sound. It sounds like wind. And it's so loud that everybody looks around. They stop walking on the streets. The taxis stop. The buses pull over to the curb. Everyone just becomes silent and they hear this sound. And people are there from all over the world doing business. And they're there as tourists. They're there from China. They're there from, from, uh, from England. They're there from every part of the world that you could list. In Africa, in Italy, Korea. Everywhere you could think, people are there and they hear this noise. And then right down the street in Central Park, there's 120 people down there. And they're all speaking, praising God. And they're hearing it in their own language. In Mandarin, in Bengali, in Hindi. And all whatever language of their own tongue. And they're hearing it. And they're hearing it, I believe, with perfect you know, enunciation and intonation and perfect accent. And they say, how can this be? These people are from Arkansas. <laughs> These are not MIT grads out here. These are people that, you know, right out of the woods. And they're speaking in our tongue. And they're praising God. That's the scene 2,000 years ago. They were hearing it in their own tongue. And they were praising God and they were just astonished by what was taking place. Here's the big take home. Because this is the Holy Spirit doing this thing. Which they, remember, they checked in the the room upstairs that day, 10 days earlier, not knowing what to expect. They had no agenda. But here's the take home. When the Holy Spirit does his work, it is very unpredictable. There's no formula. So you might have friends, and I don't want to get in a, you know, a real thing, twist you all up today. But you might have friends who really love to talk about the Holy Spirit, and they have formulas for it. They're wrong. There is no formula for the Holy Spirit. 
He acts as he wants to act. He does when he wants to do it. We can't rub the bottle and wait for the Holy Spirit genie to pop out to do what we want him to do. He comes sometimes as fire and wind. He comes sometimes in a soft nudge to Philip and says, hey, see the guy over there in the chariot? Go talk to him about Jesus because he wants to believe. And you're going to help him. He's going to receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to baptize him. Or he nudges Peter. Peter, I know this is not exactly what you want to do today, but you're going to go to Cornelius' house. Yeah, a Gentile. He's already believed. I mean, he's a God-fearing guy. He's received the Holy Spirit, and you're going to go explain that to him, and you're going to baptize him after he's received the Holy Spirit. You know? I mean, since he's received the Holy Spirit, and you're going to go ahead and do that. Cornelius, all right. There's going to be times when the Holy Spirit shakes rooms. There's going to be times when it's very quiet, when he reaches into a, a prayer meeting of people worshiping and praying in Acts 13 and says, listen, you need to take Paul, you need to take, you know, Silas, and you need to ship them out, or Barnabas, and you need to send them out to the rest of the world. You see, the Holy Spirit, you cannot predict how he's going to do it. There is no set formula. He will not be confined to how we want the Holy Spirit to do it because then it makes us totally dependent waiting upon him to do it, not for us to manufacture it. And so they wait, and that's our big take-home today when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And these simple believers, the Spirit of God comes upon them. And the next thing you know, they break huddle and they're out there in the streets and they're praising God. Well, now these people hear it. And if you look in verse 12, there's a couple of responses, just like today. 2,000 years, people don't change. One response was people were amazed, which was drawing them to the Savior. The other response, they were cynical which was pushing them away from the Savior. Notice what it says in verse 12 and 13. It says they were declaring the wonders of God, and they were amazed. They were amazed and perplexed, and they asked one another, what does this mean? That is the right question to ask. What, what does this mean? What's going on here? That was one response, amazement. Here's the other response. It says some others, however, made fun of them, and said, they have had too much wine. Whoa, these people are flat drunk. This party has been going on all night, evidently. And they were cynical. Well, Peter in verse 14 stands up, and he now preaches a message of explanation of what's taking place. If I were God, and aren't you glad I'm not? I'm not sure I would have picked Peter. I know he had a loud mouth. But, you know, this was the guy who 50 days earlier was denying Christ loudly. I probably would have picked John. I would have said, you know, John's the guy who stood at the cross. He's the guy who stuck to the end. He is the guy who leaned on Jesus' breast and who Jesus loved and they called him to blow. I mean, let's put John up. I mean, he deserves it. But aren't you glad that God works differently than we? Because he picks people who we wouldn't normally pick. He picks people who really stump their toes. He picks people that 
just doesn't quite have it together sometimes. And he said, you know why? Because I want it to be about me, not about the speaker. So let's pick loudmouth, denying, always in trouble Peter. Let him speak. And Peter gets up. Here's the outline of the message very quickly as you read it this week in your study. In verse 14, he starts to explain what's just taken place. Peter says with a loud voice, he addresses the crowd. He says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's 9 o'clock in the morning. I mean, you know, that's not what's happening. I mean, even the frat parties are over by nine. People are starting to get on coffee and sober up here. This, these people are not drunk. And so he goes on. He says, but let me tell you. He says, no, this was, was spoken by the prophet Joel. And if you read through there, he's saying, this is what Joel, Joel talked about. And then in the day, a special outpouring would come. And he explains that to them. And then in verse 21, kind of right in the middle of his message, he gives the purpose Notice what it says in verse 21. He says, and the reason all this has been happening is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who would call upon Lord, and that's Jesus, so they could be saved. That's why God got your attention this day. In the midst of all the celebration, God got your attention through simple people, 120 people, most of them from Galilee, and you got to hear something miraculous, a language in your own tongue, native tongue, that spoke to your heart as they were praising God. And now you're standing here and you're listening to me because God has done this that you, if you would call upon him, might be saved. And then he goes on in verse 23 and verse 24, and he explains the history of what had taken place just 50 days earlier. The whole crutch of the message is this, that these men, he said, that, that you've handed over to you by God, and you set purpose uh, with God's purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of the wicked men, put him to death, speaking of Jesus, and he's by nailing him to a cross. Yet God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him because he's God. And so he explains the gospel to them. And he says, you've done it. And you say, well, someone just came in from out of town. True, but someone might have been there for 50 days because many of them came in at Passover and stayed. But either way, the Jews that lived there, those that said crucify him, all of you are guilty and you did this, now he is risen. And so now he explains to them why that should be and how David also verified that. And he goes back in their history. And then down at the bottom on verse 33, he says he's now has been exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus. And he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured it out on what you now see and you're hearing. And they're all starting to collect there. And then in verse 37 the second question is asked. First question, what does it mean? He told him. Second question he asked, what do we do then? If this is all true, we've seen it before our eyes, we realize who Jesus is, we've been convicted, what do we do? And in verse 38, he explains it to them. Verse 38 has become a verse of controversy, but it's, you know, it's, if you understand how you interpret Scripture, if you take in the context of all Scripture, if you take in the sense of the context of that day, who, to whom he was speaking, why he was speaking, 
and the sequence of, and you realize this is not a line-by-line theological explanation. It's a narrative that he's given back to him. There's no controversy here. What does he say? He says, first thing, if you want to know what to do, you've got to repent. You've been following this way. You need to turn and go this way. You need to stop holding on to the past, turn to Jesus, and repent of your past and turn to him. First thing. Then, what you need to do, as all believers do, that once you've done that, you now express outwardly what you've done inwardly in your repentance by being baptized. You display Christ through your baptism. And then he says, the reason you do this is because you've been forgiven of your sins. The little preposition for is a Greek word there that many times is translated, can be translated as easily as because of. And so what he is saying is, you repent, that's where it all starts, in your heart of trusting Christ. You express it outwardly in your baptism. And the reason you're doing this is because it relates back to what you did at the beginning of your repentance, because your sins have been forgiven. Now, if you take that, and you understand that, and you put it with the rest of Scripture, there's not going to be any one verse stand on its own in the Bible without the rest of the Scripture supporting that. And the rest of the Scripture supports the fact that repentance and faith in Christ is how we're saved, not baptism. Baptism is a sign of that. And so he preaches, and that's what they do. You say, what's the result? Verse 41. It says that day. In verse 41, that 3,000 people who received and believed this message were baptized. Whoa. Can you imagine? 3,000 people baptized in one day. 120 people. I divided it out. That's 25 people apiece. You say, didn't Peter baptize them all? I thought he was the head guy. No, believers get to baptize see, in, in biblical days. Doesn't have to be a guy who's just a preacher. And so what happens? I think all 120 grab. I'll take these 25. Let's go here. They found ponds. They found fountains. They found creeks. They found rivers. They found bathtubs. I mean, they found. Every, I mean, I mean, they were dunking some people that day. Three thousand people were baptized that day. That was the result. That was a result of what took place that day on Pentecost when the church began. Somebody was counting. Okay? And some people say, I don't think you should count. Well, God thought so because he allowed that to happen. In the next chapter, so he allowed 5,000 people to be counted. When he went to, to feed people with fish and bread, he allowed at least 5,000 men to be counted. He took a whole book in the Bible called Numbers, <laughs> duh, and counted a lot of people. Yeah, you know, counting, not necessarily important. And the great thing about here, we do count, but most of you don't even know it, do you? You have no idea. People ask us a hundred times, how many people we have? That's, mm, I don't know. We don't really play on that. What we want to play on is that people are being impacted and that churches can have impact. But they were doing that. Now, let me tell you how this church continued on. I'm going to give you the quick notes. Here it is. In 528, it says that you filled all Jerusalem with your doctrine. You took to Peter and John. In 176, of Acts. It says later on that, that they pulled Jason and some believers. They said, you know what? You have turned the entire world upside down. And I wonder today, after 40 years of doing church leadership, 2,000 years later since that day, what has happened to the church in the United States? Why does that not our story? The story of the church is we huddle and we crawl like caterpillars to the sideline. And we crawl back into the huddle on Sunday. I wonder why. 
Look at the screen. Maybe this will help us. The Big Red Tractor and His Little Village Once upon a time, in a little field, in a happy little village, lived a big red tractor. Every morning during plowing season, the village people, no, not those village people, would come out and start the red tractor. Everyone loved the tractor and the powerful noises it would make. They would cheer for the big red tractor because he would help them through plowing season. The people worked together to move the tractor. Half of the villagers would push from behind while the other half would pull. They had been doing it this way for many generations. Some days they moved the tractor 10 feet. Some days they moved it 20. They did this for three whole months every year. Because of their hard work, the villagers always managed to plow the field just in time to plant and just before the rainy season. The rains would come to water the field. Then the sun would come out to make the crops grow. And then the people would come out and harvest all the new crops. It was just enough food to feed the entire village. One day, Farmer Dave was cleaning out his attic. To his surprise, he found an old book tucked beneath his great-grandpa's belongings. It was the owner's manual to the big red tractor. This book told about how the tractor was made and all the great things it could do. Farmer Dave studied the book all night. He was shocked by what he was reading. According to the book, if the big red tractor was running properly, it could plow the whole field in just one day. Early the next morning, Farmer Dave gathered the villagers to tell them the good news. But nobody believed him. There's no way that tractor can move on its own, some said. One lady said, it sounds like you're reading a fairy tale. The people laughed at him. This made Farmer Dave very sad. This didn't stop Farmer Dave from believing what he read. Every night, while the other villagers were asleep, Farmer Dave spent time repairing the big red tractor. One night, Farmer Dave fixed the tractor completely. He jumped on the tractor and had so much fun driving it, he ended up plowing the whole field in one night. The next morning, the villagers woke up and were in shock. The whole field had been plowed. It's a miracle, one man said. Maybe aliens came down, said an old woman. No, look over there, a little boy shouted. It was Farmer Dave, sleeping on the tractor. It was then that the people shouted, He was right! The tractor book is true! The villagers ended up plowing many fields that year and harvesting way more food than they could ever eat. They had so many leftover boxes of food that they began taking the boxes to other villages where food was scarce. The big red tractor and his little village soon became famous throughout the land. They became known as the most generous and life-giving people in the whole wide world. The big red tractor, it's the church. And we're trying to push it and pull it along. 2,000 years later, we look at the church with all of its modern things, and here we are pulling it, and we're pushing, and it inches along, and it crawls like a caterpillar. 
And what bothers me in the current church in the United States is that you can inch ahead of the other caterpillars if you get the right speaker. If you get a speaker that's better than just maybe anybody else in town, and you get a little better band than everybody else in town, and if you get a really cool building, and if you get, I mean, really cool programs for the little kids and the, and the teenagers so mom and dad are happy, and that is very important to make them happy. And if we can get the best technology, we can crawl a little ahead of the other caterpillars, and before you know it, our huddle can be bigger than everybody else's huddle. And we crawl back to the sidelines still. And at the end of the game, you look at the scoreboard. We had the best uniforms. We had the best stadium. I mean, we had the best workout rooms. And the clock's gone. And the home team hadn't scored any points. And we lost the picking game. But we were ahead of the other caterpillars. And that's the modern-day church. You see, what bothers me is, what if that cool speaker croaks? What if the band loses their guitars? What if no one knows how to operate the technology? Then what happens? You see, what I really want to ask in my closing thoughts are some questions. What if, what if we actually broke huddle and left here understanding that there was a dunamis, there was a power that really didn't depend upon how cool we were, but could fall upon every believer because it's in every believer, could go home and go to their place tomorrow, whether it's a campus, whether it's an office, a factory, whatever it might be, a neighborhood, and what if we would actually go there and see where we're, our assignment in life is what it's about? That is more than making a dollar, more than making a grade, that's all important, but what we actually do, we are going to be witnesses. <laughs> and we leave our house that day Reading the scriptures that today, God, I am to go and be a witness. I don't know how it's going to be. I don't know how you're going to enable me to do that. I don't know if it's going to be a conversation, if it's going to be a good deed, an act that I do, that would ask them later to ask me, why did you do that? But God, what if that would happen today, that the reason I go today is to do a work of righteousness, to live on a campus and in an office and in a neighborhood with a sense that the Spirit of God who is in me, I've asked him today to activate me as you did that early church. And today, I have a place to go to serve you. And we go infused, as the first year church did, by the Holy Spirit. What if that would take place? What if we would really believe that what infuses the church is what they were doing there? What infused them that day? With the Spirit of God. It was activated by prayer. Now, you don't have to be a theologian to pray. You don't have to be a great orator to pray. All you got to be is someone who's waiting and praying and seeking God that day. And so now I ask the question, what if the church really believed that prayer was vital to its future? What if we believe that prayer is more important than our cool technology? 
What if we believed that prayer was more important than even who spoke or what was done up here or anywhere? What if we really believed that prayer was critical and every member every day would begin their day saying, God, this is your day. I'm waiting on you. I'm going to need you today. I'm going to the office today not to check out the next job and how I can do better there. I'm going to go today to the job to do my job and in doing it be a witness for you. What if families made prayer the biggest item is 24 or the NBA playoffs this afternoon? What if dads would really man up and say, kids, it's more than what we've been doing. We've got, I want to lead you as a dad to what we're, well, why we exist as a family. What if dads would do that? What if elders and pastors and pastors' wives and elders' wives and church staff would really say, you know, yeah, we got to keep the records. We got to do the excellent ministry. But we've got to do first is pray and seek God's face. What if when the church was called together in prayer as they were in this chapter, that everybody was there with no excuse? No excuse. Not, well, I just like praying. No, you don't have to pray in public. Go hide in the corner and pray. Just just be united seeking God's face that we cannot do what he has called us to do unless we're infused by his spirit, which is usually activated by our prayer and praying unitedly together and daily. What if we would do the assignment this week? There it is. You see the assignment? Here's the assignment. Number one, this is your assignment, your take home. When you leave the huddle today, here's your game plan for the week. Only three things. I think we can get it down. Three simple things. Number one, read Acts 1-8 every day. Well, it's only one. Read it again every day as you start your day. Saying, God, here's my assignment. To be a witness. Not just to say it, but to be it. Number two. Then I'm going to pray throughout the day. God, I'm your witness today. Open up those things. Bring me people that I need to be in contact. Consciously be aware of your witness. Asking God to give you the opportunity to have significant conversation. Do significant works of righteousness. That would be curiosity to them to say, why? And you say, whether it's at Wagabag or anywhere else, it's because I'm a Christ follower. And then three, you ready? I've never asked you to do this till now. And I hate him asking you this, but I'm going to look forward to the joy of it. Email me. Don't put it on Facebook. Email me, all right? Email me, Dennis at Sherman Bible. And this week, say, Dennis... I want to tell you, I've actually been doing this, and guess what? I had a great conversation today. Doesn't mean you had to win them. You didn't have to get to victory. God didn't call you to be the closer. He called you to be a witness. You let the Holy Spirit decide. But it might be that you got to see someone cross over the line. But you email me and say, you know what? I hope next week I stand up here with a handful of emails that I can read to you. Hey, Dennis, guess what? Today, you know, I went to school. I went to the office, and God gave me an opportunity to talk about him. God, today opened up. I had a chance to do something I'd never done. I helped somebody here. And the next thing you know, the conversation turned towards him. You see, if a church would enable themselves to think of Acts 1-8, this is why I exist today, call upon and wait upon the Spirit of God to open those doors and empower you, then you don't have to push and pull the church. You don't have to be dependent upon how cool we are. The church comes alive. And it's way beyond the platform it's way beyond cool buildings. It's in the streets. It's out of the huddle. That's what we've been called to do. Let's pray. Father, today we will remember what we've been called to do. 
by what we symbolize in a moment in our hand. We're going to be remembering what we've been called to do by what you did for us. And today as we take these elements, may they remind us. May they remind us of our purpose to witness of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so I pray today will be a day of reminder, a day that we take our assignment seriously, and the day that Sherman Bible becomes the church that it's supposed to be. And Father, that'll take us way beyond concrete and lights and stages. It'll take us to the person next door, a student at the hallway at class and somewhere around our campus. God, let us be the church. Let the story continue. Thanks for listening. For more information, feel free to visit our website at shermanbible.com or call anytime during our office hours, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 p.m. at 903-893-7795.